You're listening to CircuitCast with your host, Mark Amory. Well, kia ora koutou, welcome to CircuitCast, and it's 2018, and this year uh, we're doing a series of artists in conversation. Some of them have collaborated and know each other well, some are meeting for the first time. Today I have Sonia Lacey and Gavin Hipkins with me here. Kia ora to you both. Kia ora. Kia ora. Maybe we could start with some of your current projects. Sonia, you've completed recently a residency in Singapore at the NTU Centre for Contemporary Art. I was wondering maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about the research you've been doing there. That residency is with a contemporary art gallery and, um, and which is associated with a university in Singapore and they set up this opportunity to research, to bring artists together to research um, throughout Southeast Asia. So it's based in Singapore but they they want you to kind of look further afield. You don't have to produce an exhibition. So I went there thinking, with, with a very open mind actually, but wanting to research uh, print cultures in Cambodia particularly because they have this kind of legacy dating back to the Khmer Rouge um, of bootlegging, bootlegging books. So it was a rip-off versions of books that were crea- mm. created within Cambodia? Yeah, so so through the, in the Khmer Rouge, a lot of the books, it was very anti-intelligentsia, so all the books were destroyed and then people started kind of hand-copying and, and lending hand-copied books and then photocopiers made that process a lot more a lot more accessible. Uh, and interestingly, uh, the guy who started Pirate Bay when he got oh, yes. arrested, he he uh, exiled himself to um, Phnom Penh, the capital. So there are these kind of technological shifts that all kind of coincide in this one city. And Gavin, you've just finished um, a rather, rather big survey of your work, very impressive survey at the Dallas Art Museum in Lower Hutt. And you've also got a sort of a, a sequel to the Homely at the City Gallery at the moment. It looks like a very busy period for you in terms of bringing work together. Yep, so last year was a big year in relationship to getting uh, those projects uh, launched uh, along with a collaborative show at the Adam. So there's been quite a strong regional uh, focus, a Wellington focus on my, my practice. Uh, and now it's just a uh, really a period of reflecting on that and moving on to new projects which are primarily moving image based. So I've just come from City Gallery today and trying to spend as much time with those projects as possible while they're in exhibition form because one of the things about, obviously one of the things about uh, having these exhibitions in other cities is you don't get to spend a lot of time uh, with the work in situ <clears throat> which means that there's not uh, so much opportunity to uh, absorb the work uh, in, a, in those specific locations and specific times, but also to reflect on uh, moments of works that have worked well and um, moments that haven't worked well uh, and, and reflect on that in relationship to the production of current work. There was a big shift in your work quite a few years ago now in, into, into film, and here you are having to deal with the gallery and a lot of this work. I'm interesting how it's making you reflect on this change from photography to film and I guess your comfort with that and why what keeps you going with film at the moment. 
Sure. So I think the cinematic was always embodied in my photographic practice, uh, and particularly uh, around um, the use of multi-part series uh, and often strips that look like uh, film strips uh, hung out to dry. So in that regard, I think the, you know, the cinematic has always been present. But you're right, in 2010, I made a conscious decision to start making films per se. And I think with those uh, early works, there was an overstepping, a conscious um, taking on board new models and learning those uh, quite traditional uh, film approaches, um, including working with others at shooting stage and actors and post-production work, etc. And uh, since then, over the last few years, there's been a pulling back, really, I think, with perhaps uh, Era 1, 2014, and, and the port. It uh, marks a time when there is a reclaiming of those roles and um, more of a uh, synthesis with the earlier work that unfolds around, um, in particular, the, the place or the relationship between moving and still images. So many of the moving image works uh, contain stills uh, and vice versa. I wonder, Sonia, if this kind of connects a little bit with your work in terms of the play between the still and the moving. I mean, the newspaper Vignelli work we mentioning before, I think, of the tumbling newspaper um, and an interest in, I don't know, this kind of these spaces in between modes of technology. Yeah, I mean, uh, Gavin comes from a f- really strong photographic practice and I think I approach, I, I'm may, maybe similarly we, we kind of latterly come to moving image but um, I guess I come from quite a different, I come from a design background and um, a sculpture background I guess. So I think I approach it with some of those um, methodologies or uh, conceptual drivers. Well, how did you come to start to use moving image? How did that extend from working in sculpture? A lot of my a lot of my moving image work begins or happens concurrently with the making of a sculpture. So Vanelli was my first real moving image work, and the sort of sculptural component in that is uh, was this process of remaking a newspaper um, which had been designed by Massimo and Leila Vanelli, two um, kind of amazing people in the history of modernist design. They, they proposed this design for the European Journal, uh, but it was never taken up. So I was, I was interested in this kind of proposal that failed by these heavyweights. I went back to archives and I created a whole newspaper from what I could piece together. Um, so for me, that was a kind of sculptural process. So I went through the right. process of producing it. And then, and then the film work was um, an act of kind of distribution. <laughs> the newspaper sort of blowing in the, in the wind. So it's sort of a, an idea of circulation, which was the intent of the work. And that's really become a, a kind of template for some of my other moving image works. Um, I guess later I brought in text quite um, or language quite strongly to that to that template as well. That that engagement with modernism and this kind of sense of uh, 
some, uh, something that was experimented with and then not followed through. It's kind of interesting to me, Gavin, with a lot of your work's interests, we, we talk about failed utopias or utopian visions and how they're played through. And I think of our recent work, City of Tomorrow, the, with the Corbusier city there in India. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that work. Sure. I mean, while Sonia was talking, I was reflecting on, um, you know, both our practices are, I think, engaged with um, unrealized and realized projects and also failed projects or latent projects yes. and um, <laughs> the city of tomorrow is one of those although it, it was realized but also I think all the uh, textual you know is I think evident also across um, both our practices and it's interesting to hear that you come from a sculpture background because I wasn't aware of that I was aware of the design component and um, I learned recently Tony Delatour was trained as a sculptor also, which I didn't know. So he, and he, he, when he came out of art school, he kind of billed himself as you know, a painter without a license or, or, or thereabouts. <laughs> um, and, but you're, you know, the methodology or your approach of making and staging, which often seem to take, these processes seem to take quite a long time. I'm thinking of um, by, by sea, for example. Um, remind me of um, someone like Thomas DeMann's process and he also came from mm. uh, the position of a sculptor and his use of photography is really just incidental and, and moving image in a way uh, as a means of expressing those ideas and you know working in miniature uh, in Marquette form and then looking to for film uh, and stills as a means of documenting uh, that which is really based around some sense of metamorphosis mm. of space, etc. And and I mean I had, I revisited uh, by sea, which you know I think is a really exquisite uh, work and and particularly exquisite response to the writings of Julia Mar Margaret uh, Paul because I don't understand the connection to, <laughs> to that commission. So I'd, I'd be really interested to hear of um, you know with that work. Uh, which is an imaginary apartment, right? By yeah. by an imaginary sea. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so this, <laughs> these kind of imaginary communities. How did you treat that as a springboard? Because you know I was part of the next year's mm. set of circuit commissions, which looked at the writings of Julian Dashper. So I think as mm. as yeah. another bunch, we were faced with that similar challenge. So maybe you could talk to that. Oh sure. How, how reverent or irreverent your positioning was, or ambivalent yeah. to, to that commission. Yeah, it was. I think it was both reverent and irreverent um, at the same time. I I think. Um, yeah, I think it was really interesting that we were given the writing of Joanna Margaret Paul um, rather than her film work. Um, and so we were each given a few poems um, and they're all different from each other's. The one, you know, we were all given different poems. And the ones that I were given, um, you know, they brought in, I think, the idea of the domestic um, and they... And, and she imbued it with a, a real sort of sense of gravity and um, and so that's something that uh, translates fairly directly in, into the idea of like a, an apartment um, which was my domestic space and that you know in these kind of the, the problematic apartments in Auckland <laughs> at the time <laughs> and um, one poem that I was 
particularly attracted to uh, there was this repeated phonetic and visual device that she used and it was um, the arc, the arch and the arc with a K so there's a sort of geometry and architecture and this kind of floating residence of an arc. So those were my springboards really but I think you have to decide on dependency like how dependent the work that you make is on the uh, work that you're referencing and I wanted to stay in dialogue but but create a work that could stand quite alone. I think I almost thought of that work by C when I was looking at City of Tomorrow ironically I don't know if there's a connection for me but this the City of Tomorrow work Gavin I'm still interested in hearing more about it because this sense of being this other this other place and I'm, I am really interested in that kind of engagement with these failed ideas or, or, or plans that never saw fruition and what what is that power what why why are these why are these special now what what, what is the resonance you think they have for the present okay so it's uh, city of tomorrow took as its blueprint uh, the writings of Le Corbusier, the early writings from 1929 uh, and his publication, The City of Tomorrow and Its Planning, uh, and um, held those writings up against uh, the major work from his late career period, which was the realization of the planned city of Chandigarh, so three hours northwest of Delhi, uh, where many of his celebrated buildings in the capital complex or sector one uh, in a current state of disrepair and, and decay. So these were built in the 1950s and there's a number of conversations happening with regards to uh, the preservation of those buildings. Uh, and I was interested, I mean, I, I was first in Chandigarh in 1997 where I made a small slide projection work called The Trench. Uh, so in 2013, I returned and uh, documented the city over a, a three-week period uh, in relationship to the exhibition Leisure Valley, uh, and uh, the port also came out of that. So a couple of years later, I felt that the exhibition Leisure Valley would, um, there was still a moving image work there that was conceivable. So I went back to Le Corbusier's early zealous writings and literally uh, compared them, but a lot of the images have the surface quality to them, which you know I also <laughs> can yes, sense that yes. with you know, and by sea we're immersed by these these structures, by these walls, and we travel through uh, these spaces, and and there is a touchstone point there in relationship to the monumental structures of of Chandigarh, but also the attention uh, to surface detail in in, in both works. So. I think you're right, Mark. There is, you know, there is some a sight, guys, with regards to um, in and around these conversations of imagined communities and perhaps also uh, these, you know, utopian ideals. And it's not as cynical as a position we once held, you know, when postmodernism was the law. I think it's more of a um, reflective position on those uh, modernist moments, but also a potentially celebratory one, uh, which risks becoming this kind of um, taste-driven, um, you know, or, or almost, um, I mean, you know, brutalism, uh, you know, is um, now, you know, being held up, and, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of coffee table publications that document 
um, brutalist buildings, you know, through the, the, the um, former Eastern Bloc, etc. Does that ring with you, Sonia, in terms of your interest in modernist histories with design and topography and so forth? There's still a lot yeah. for us to, to gather from coming, I mean, to mine from, from this era. Yeah, I think it's um, often a bit of a foil or something in my work. Like it's uh, something that... Um, I, uh, a lot of what I think about are um, like tools of readability and um, ways, you know, a lot of uh, modernist design was about kind of pure transmission of content. Um, and um, I agree with you, Gavin, that it's not, it's, it's, I, like, I'm not trying to be cynical about any of that. I, th- I think it's... Um, you know, I really love the optimism of it um, and and see or understand really well the challenges of it at the same time. I often think of it as almost like a found object or something, which I try to kind of like, you know, like by remaking a, a newspaper that didn't didn't exist or um, like a, in infinitesimals, I, I make a typeface um, out of lead, which never existed in that way. Um, it's it's almost like making the found object that I wish existed. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I could find or something. Um, yeah, um, but hopefully, hopefully, kind of that's complicated through the text, the film somehow as well. You've both got a real interest in text, obviously, and I'm interested in the way that works. Using text within moving image for me happened. Um, as a way of solving a problem of duration for for Bicey that was commissioned as a for a cinema context. So whereas with Vanelli, which was the only other movie image work I'd made, um, that was envisaged for a uh, an exhibition context where you could come and go. So I was really aware of the obligation that people had to sit through ten minutes of film. <laughs> So um, I didn't know how to structure that time, you know. But I'd been, I'd been making these uh, scripted perform. I mean, like I call them performances, but they're very unperformative. You know, the the, the reading basically scripted readings, um, uh, which were uh, given to one or two people at a time. And so, as a way to deal with. Uh, the duration of this film that I was making, I um, pulled that in as a strategy, and the and I liked with the performances how it sort of delineated a scale f- fairly naturally, and so that is a, is more difficult I think you know when you're working with moving image and speakers and um, mm. but I, I wanted to somehow bring in a sense of it, the same sort of sense of intimacy. Um, through the use of text, I guess. Um, and that was the first kind of... It was much more fictitious than anything else I'd ever written before, so that was kind of interesting, and I'm still trying to work that out. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, language... I mean, there's lots to talk about with language in moving image, I think, but sometimes, um, sometimes language is visual so I'm interested in working you know like through and and because I keep bringing in these kind of design and publishing um, cues 
into the moving image. Um, I'm interested in working with formatting, like text in a visual form, as well as text in a, a spoken form. I think the script is really interesting in that sense because it's both, it's kind of somewhere in between. It, it's a document, but it's a document for speech, um, which has kind of a relevance within um, the screenplay. So I'm interested, so, so I like that it can kind of go, it can be represented visually or um, through text, and I also have published them independently of the moving image as well. So it, it's a bit uh, floaty like that. Well, that's been a big thing I thought would suggest, Gavin, with your work, this, this idea of the script and the performance mm. and the choice between the spoken performance or the, the subtitle, the, the text. How do, you, how, do you, how do you make that decision? Uh, well, I've, I've just been listening to Sonia and, and thinking that you know both uh, practices uh, essayistic in form as well. So I think the literary references are their uh, type, is their format, is their voice over, is their. Um, and I'm interested in the challenges of making works uh, if. The essay film has become a trope, uh, an extent which I, you know, which I get a sense of now. <coughs> they even has a, they even have an essay film festival in London, right? So if the film essay has become a trope, and these strategies that we're using have become formulaic, uh, then it then it poses a challenges for I think for us as uh, image makers and, and filmmakers. Well, how how do we negotiate uh, our way through that? And some of the challenges that I've encountered, and I'd be interested to hear your take on this also, mm. Sonia, um, you know, thinking of your works in particular with uh, voiceovers, um, is the presence of the voice, right? The authoring of the voice, uh, even the accent of uh, the voice. So as soon as we ask or hire one of our friends to become the voice, uh, it, it becomes from this place, and that mm. sense of side specificity um, and authoring of, uh, or you know, speaking from a sense of place. Some artists in recent times have attempted to nullify that through, so, you know, through either filters or Google Voice Translator, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So even the the distorted voiceover has become uh, a, a trope to some extent. So, so yeah, what does it what does it mean for uh, someone? What does it mean for, in terms of a sense of place? Um, you know, how specific? You know, if I'm thinking of your most recent film, right, which pairs uh, the, the homeopath's lab sure. with uh, the type foundry, uh, and the voice is owned by Sophie, right? Is that, yeah, yeah, Sophie Thorne. Sophie Thorne is a voice which I yeah. recognise. Yeah, the close-ups, and, and that's another interesting thing about our, both our practices, we're often relying on visual close-ups often, so they're, you know, they're arguably quite claustrophobic mm. productions, and that's something I've been thinking about, is how to make a non-claustrophobic mm. work, how to make a slightly more generous work. Um, but within that, within that contained space, or that heterotopian space, what does it mean for Sophie's voice to be present? Why her voice in particular? And, that, and that's the same question, you know, when I'm considering of uh, of authoring. I've worked with Mia Blake mm. on, you work with on, the on same more than person. one on 
occasion okay. because but I, you've also used yourself i've used myself on one occasion but it was like yeah. some distortion took place because i couldn't be a listen to myself <laughs> uh, but the work also suited that um when you age you know the, the voice comes from another place you know so it's talking to this uh, kind of uh, solstice gathering so there's a slight spiritualist edge um yeah so why sophie's voice for this occasion what was the match there and how did you negotiate that or and whose voice is in Baisi? Baisi is Fuko Akiyoshi. Um, and maybe just to talk to her first, th- those are all big considerations. Um, Baisi, you know, I, I feel is sort of geographically located. Um, I mean, not not specifically, but but you know, it's a it's a coastal environment, and I feel like that's something that New Zealanders can imagine quite easily so i don't mind it being too new zealandy and yet i specifically thought fuko had a great voice because her she's i don't know when she moved to new zealand but she's been in new zealand for a very long time Um, but she's japanese and it's hard to place her accent she doesn't have a kiwi accent really but it's not American and it's not Asian and you know. So I, I liked that it was a bit slippery. When I was in Singapore, they couldn't understand her. <laughs> <laughs> Were you tempted to have um, subtitles? Yeah, I did, but I didn't like that. I, t- I tried it, but I didn't like it. Even with your design skills? You couldn't choose the right not, type? Not for that, it didn't work. It wasn't a matter of choosing the right type, it was just that work didn't, it didn't work for that work. I didn't want to record it myself either, probably for similar reasons to why you found it uncomfortable. But it's important for me that it's a female um, for these works anyway. Um, and she's a good enunciator, <laughs> you know. It's sort of as simple as that um, for, for that work. Is the reader looking at images or are they imagining? Or how, what is your prompt or direction? I do it all through type and space and typographic emphasis and yeah that's all how do you do it well it's uh, quite old-fashioned so we have the we have pictures up they may the pictures may not necessarily pertain to the precise scene um, but it um, well with Mia in particular who's you know a professional actor uh, it helps her to embody some sense of mood mm. or, or state uh, and because those in particular with Erewhon whereby uh, Mia Blake is reading Higgs, the main character in the feature film. There's a lot of, quite a lot of characterization that's necessary for her to understand mm. her role. And with that characterization, uh, is taking, uh, to what's taking place is a shifting state, some sense of metamorphosis through the duration. So with Chris Todd, uh, the voice um, director, and myself, and Chris is vastly experienced in this area, that's what we keep coming back to is you know where is Higgs now where is Mia's character now mm. so in that regard it's quite literary reading uh, it's a, and it's I mean when there is an important inversion that you know, is taking place in that it's a, a gendered inversion so it's a male mm. character that Mia is owning uh, and the same with the reading of H.G. Wells's Time Machine which she does such a, a beautiful job of so I mean I would have quite happily work with Mia uh, for the rest of my films, you know, in a way that, say, Patrick Keeler 
uh, worked with his narrator until he passed away. Mm. Is that uh, Paul Schofield from memory, yeah, the, the British reader? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to find that that resonance. Uh, mm. But I mean, obviously, it's project determined. Uh, obviously, it's project specific. Uh, but to have a reader who understands, um, you know, not what is who can read, but also to understand the meaning behind the reading is, is at another layer, mm. which conveys in a production. That reminds me that I didn't know this before I asked Sophie, but she she started a doctorate in lead conservation of lead in artworks. Mm, so it's the right form for her. Yeah, which was. Wow. Pretty special, <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to talk to you both about, well, I'm interested in your reflections for each other about collaboration and working with other people. I mean, imagine Gavin, when you started making movies, you're suddenly also working with a team of people, which was quite different. And Sonia, you you have light reading with uh, Sarah Rose, I think it is. Uh, I was interested in maybe a, some reflection on on that. I mean, Gavin, it must have been that must have been a big shift for you. So my my project was very insular. And I think that you know you could see this in the Dow's uh, survey that there was a real obsessiveness uh, right throughout. And then in the late two thousands, I started to become kind of slightly worn out or, or uh, image weary in relationship to that obsessiveness and the engagement with the multiple. So there is there are at least two collaborative projects that start to take place at that stage. There's the collaborative. Uh, filmmaking work uh, in a traditional sense but there's also the collaboration which which, uh, starts with Carl Fritsch, the Wellington-based jeweller, which unfolds and I think with both of those projects there's a giving up uh, and uh, a welcoming of others input, um, you know, creative energy. So for example with Carl uh, I sent him uh, darkroom images, photos, he doesn't know what he's going to get and then he can do whatever he, he wants to them and through them, etc. And I have no idea uh, of his treatment. Uh, so there's that there's that invitation of collaboration. And I, th- and I think that's, as I mentioned before, I've pulled back on some of that ownership, especially around the visual material, but in, uh, in relationship to sound and uh, music and scores, there's still a literal handing over. Um, and with New World, um, the certain commissioned work uh, responding to George Clark's invitation uh, to talk to Julian Dashper's writings. Uh, the sound designer, uh, Ben Sinclair, I gave him an, an old-fashioned paper edit of the film, so he, he never had uh, access to the images, uh, but in, uh, and those instructions were, you know, we're uh, traveling uh, along the Red River in Texas, Wow, right. and a, a, a storm comes and it's in the form of a timeline and that's something that I'll be working with uh, a new work with Ben which will take on that strategy again mm-hmm. so you know there's that imagining that space to imagine rather than the complication of and the dutifulness that um, sound designers have to somehow you know match emphases to, to cuts mm-hmm. and those sorts of other um, traps wow, or conventions Sonia for you how much is collaboration involved in, in the work? Um, I think it's different for every work. I, I also have worked with uh, composers and musicians um, for some of my recent moving image work, and that's maybe a similar project. Here's, here's what I have at the moment. <laughs> and, um, 
and uh, you know give them as much kind of tonal um, information as possible and um, and visual visual material and they um, there's a bit of back and forth to make it work um, and then there's yeah so there's sort of a I guess you act as a commissioner and that's almost that's there's something kind of collaborative about that a little bit but you still you're still quite in control as well um, but then in other projects like light reading that that idea of collaboration is entirely different where um, Sarah and I can uh, we come up with things from the ground up together we can overwrite whatever each there's no there's no um, there's no hierarchy at all we can overwrite anything that each other have done so can you give us an example of a project well I can give you an example of where I became kind of conscious of our <laughs> style of collaboration that was for the recent project which was um, the new nightclub for Courtney Place which is the Courtney Place light boxes and we were Sarah and I call ourselves light, call that part of our practice light reading um, and then we worked with her sister who's a, a young architect and um, a, a really incredible um, senior architect who's based in New York and Spain Susanna uh, so Sarah's sister's Rafaela Rose and uh, the other architect is Susanna Tor so Sarah and I would sort of rip into each other's stuff and just you know there's nothing nothing that's untouchable and that's the way we kind of approached the collaboration as a whole and then sort of realised as we were going that maybe that's a bit offensive to, to other people and we would feel quite comfortable sort of talking to Susanna about maybe some things that we thought could be done better or uh, you know and um, realise that to maybe collaborations is a slightly generational thing or maybe it was just but you know she'd had to sort of fight for authorship all her life you know she was a young architect in the 70s and the idea of kind of seeding um, you know giving over your ideas to other people or having other people kind of write into them in the way that we were you know wasn't actually you know quite problematic to her so so there was a whole kind of new negotiation of what collaboration mean, meant for that project and it certainly made me more aware of this uh, you know what Sarah and I had kind of developed over a number of years from a show at art space where we started working together and um, yeah that's almost 10 years of, and we shared a studio so you know like there's just kind of a, a given that I get kind of uh, we take take for granted a respect that we have for each other's practice and and don't don't worry <laughs> so much yeah that was a that was a real sort of eye opener for me actually this kind of idea of Carl Fritsch sort of embedding and playing with your work Gavin is a really interesting kind of flouting of the so-called preciousness of the photographer's work of the you really enjoy that challenge I guess. It, it doesn't feel like a challenge at all, and and the wonderful thing about it is it no longer feels like my work. Uh, so that right. so that it's uh, so although you know the first step is sending Carl an image, uh, they're no longer my uh, images, and and there may not be much left of them after Carl's you know attacked them with the angle grinder, or driven over them with his motorcycle, or, or embellished them you know beautifully with with rubies etc. So it becomes this this other space or this third space between. 
uh, our our work and uh, um, you know another example of that would be the impact and influence that working with musicians mm -hmm. has on our practices I think you know and that we're spoiled <clears throat> in this land that we have so many wonderful sound artists and sound musicians uh, and my favorite room at the, the domain at the Dallas the survey show was that which was activated by Torben Tilly mm. uh, in which so you, you went into the space and there were a number of visual components but the entire gallery was activated by uh, this version of the soundtrack for City of Tomorrow um, but it's unlocked from that single channel work and that uncoupling uh, of different elements uh, with the moving image and around the moving image and the performative um, I think is runs across both our practices mm. as well so um, another example there would be uh, you know live readings which Mia Blake has done and Rachel Shearer's live performance with Erewhon um, the sampling of of quotes in a random, relatively random order uh, etc to to activate uh, uh, these single channel works but also, of course, to bring them to a you know community level event or a shared experience and and the performative, so re-energizing. Gavin and Sonia, thank you for joining us here on Circuit Cast. It's been really lovely to talk to you and to, to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Max. This episode of Circuit Cast was brought to you with the assistance of Creative New Zealand. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or any of your favourite podcatchers. For more, go to circuit.org.nz.